0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: How much of US power is underground? By which I mean, we hear a lot about US military assets used on land, on sea, in the air, but not much about what's going on underground and on the seabed. And it turns out that what goes on down there is a significant source of US power, and it's been documented by Henry Farrell in his co-authored book, Underground Empire, how America Weaponized the World Economy. So welcome to you. Delighted to be here. And, and basically your point is the US has more surveillance capacity underground undersea than most people realize. That's correct. And it's because the networks that hold
1: globalization uh, together, all of these networks, uh, whether they be networks that convey financial information, whether they convey information like the Internet, whether they're supply chains, all of these in some way or another converge on the United States. And as Abraham Newman and I have documented in the book that is forthcoming, uh, this provides the United States with the opportunity to use these networks both to listen into what the world is saying and also as necessary to control what people are able to say are sent to each other so that, for example, the United States has been able to uh, use its network power to interdict entire countries such as
2: Iran and prevent them from having access to uh, global financial networks. And in terms of the infrastructure that enables America to do this, it was basically put in place at the time that America was at its height, in, its power was strong, and, and that's why it was able to do this. That's absolutely right, and this was not a plot by the United States. Instead,
1: it is because, as you say, in the 1990s, when the United States was at the apex of its power... This is also the time when globalization really began to get get going. So if you were building these global networks as a uh, business in the private sector, you probably saw the United States as being uh, the place that you wanted to be. And so these networks naturally tended to have their centers in places that the United States either had direct control, they were on US territory, or else was able to use its reach in order to extend its uh, control abroad. And so in a certain sense, the networks that hold globalisation together, if they centre on the United States because of globalisation having happened when it did, that then provided the United States after September 11th with unparalleled ability to use these networks in order to exert power, and as Abraham and I suggest, to create a
2: kind of underground empire. So let's just deal with each area of technology one by one. And you have an astonishing claim about the internet, and uh, I'm not sure I've got the wording exactly right, but something like all but one percent of internet bandwidth—we'll talk about what you mean by that—for messages between regions goes through the states physically, right? So, so this was true back in the
1: 1990s. It is not nearly so true now. So, part of what we documented in the book is that these networks have, to some extent. They have uh, disconnected from the United States uh, to a greater degree, certainly in the last decade or so, than they than, than was true in the past. But when we were in the uh, peak of U.S. power, you did see this, and the uh, figure that we get, this is actually from the National Security Agency, as uh, best as I remember. And the National Security Agency is basically just quite delighted that so much of the world's information passes through places that it is capable of reaching in. And then turning the internet into a kind of vast uh, distributed surveillance system that it can then use to really listen into what its adversaries, what its allies are saying to each other, and then scoop off the cream and provide that to uh, its masters and uh, uh, and give them a considerable advantage in uh, being, able to, uh, being able to figure out what it is that people actually are thinking, what it is that they are doing, and then allow
2: the United States to respond accordingly. So are you saying a message, an email sent from, I don't know, Democratic Republic of Congo to South Korea, might go through the US. Uh, That is correct. Because if you look at the way that uh, maps uh,
1: of the global internet work, really these maps are uh, maps of the physical systems that allow for internet communications to pass from point A to point B. And very often, these are intercontinental fiber optic cables of one sort or another. And so many of these cables actually passed through the United States. And so this then allowed the United States to install uh, bugging equipment uh, so that uh, literally uh, you saw these, uh, these cables coming in and coming into these major uh, switches, which were controlled by U.S. telecommunications companies. And there were rooms that these uh, companies had, which were dedicated to the NSA, where it was possible then, uh, so half of the signal got split off into a specialized system which could then trawl it for interesting information and pass uh, interesting or useful information back up to the mothership. Now, of course, technologically, it obviously turned out very often to be messier than that. Uh, all of these systems, they don't work as well in practice as they do in principle. And as I say, it has, over the last decade or two decades, the United States has become less central to the internet than it used to be. If If you think about how the internet works, the internet works through a decentralized system, which tries to figure out what is the fastest way to get from point A to point B? And you might think that within a national network, you're always going to want to stay within the national network to get the information from one point to another if it's happening within a single country. but it could be that it actually is faster to zip the information out to fiber optic cables which are controlled by the United States rather than slower domestic services and bounce it back in. And that allows you for uh, that allows for faster uh, faster internet communications, but also, at the same time, it allows the United States to take a look at the
2: information and to figure out if there is anything interesting that it wants to uh, get its hands on. That's astonishing. So if I sent an email via uh, yeah, I'm in Wales at the moment to London, it might go through America.
1: Probably less likely for the United Kingdom, because the United Kingdom has a, a very extensive and uh, quite well-built uh, network. But if you're thinking about developing countries, it's a very different story. And also, if you think about the relationships that the United States has with its allies, there also are possibilities and opportunities there. This is something we don't talk about in the book, but the uh, Snowden cables, or the Snowden uh, leaks, rather, they provided information which suggested that, effectively, the NSA had a lot of individual relationships with uh, UK or European companies, which allowed it access to some of much of the information that they were getting. And... Even if, for example, gchq was not capable of of tapping into the uh, communications of UK citizens, there might be implicit workarounds which might allow the uh, other other countries' uh, intelligence agencies to grab information and to use it that way. So there is a so it's a very complicated, very tangled system which did provide quite a lot of access to information probably less for the United Kingdom than for other countries, because the United Kingdom has the so-called Five Eyes relationship with the uh, United States and a couple of other countries where they effectively agree not to spy upon each other's communications. But uh, there were often a lot of uh, implied workarounds. Uh, certainly, for example, Germany, I've spoken to people who have suggested that uh, German intelligence services had great difficulty in Tapping into the communications of domestic extremists because of the strength of German privacy law, so that they often worked around uh, this by uh, having informal relationships with the United States, which would provide them with access to information that they otherwise could not legally have gotten their hands on.
2: Yeah, right. It's, it's rather parallel to the "we can't torture, but you can torture for us" sort of sort of method. Yeah. So, so just to understand the scale of this, you said that the one percent figure that you know, 1% of traffic was is only 1% of traffic didn't go through America, is changed now. Have you got a figure for what it is now? Uh, no, we don't have very good figures at the moment uh, for what it is.
1: What I can say, as I say, is that the map of submarine cables has changed substantially since then. So it used to be a map which really centered very, very directly on the United States. Now, over the last decade uh, to 15 years, we've seen a lot of activity happening in Asia which does not pass through the United States. And this has been the uh, source of some contention between the United States and China, where the U.S. has used its legal powers and its authorities to try to prevent fiber optic cables being laid by companies such as Huawei, uh, which is a major Chinese telecommunications company, and Huawei's successor, in part because uh, they do not want China being able to do what the United States has done in the past, in part also because the more that this uh, information travels upon uh, cable systems, which the United States has more direct access to, the easier it is for the United States itself to conduct its
2: surveillance and its spying. I was going to get on to China later, but maybe we should deal with it now then. So the, the contest with Huawei, which, you know, was big under Trump, wasn't it? And it was presented as, uh, you know, partly Huawei getting access to surveillance capacity in the West. What you're writing about was at the center of that dispute, do you think? Uh, Very much so, very much so. And we've done a lot of, we've had a lot of conversations with
1: people about uh, Huawei, which of course was a very, very big controversy in the United Kingdom. Uh, We saw uh, cabinet resignations and other things happening as a result of the bitter internal disputes over what should happen with Huawei. But really, if you think about what was happening there, I think the best way to understand it is not to focus on surveillance as such, but on the many ways in which you try to shape a network to uh, provide your uh, home country with political power because the consensus as far as I can see it is as follows. So Huawei is this big telecommunications company. It was building out the uh, infrastructure for world 5G communications and this probably would have allowed China to listen in much more easily than it had in the past. But also Huawei's uh, equipment was notoriously quite leaky. That is, it's almost certain that the National Security Agency and other agencies were capable of listening in to figure out what was happening, whether you're using Huawei equipment, whether you're using somebody else's equipment. But what Huawei potentially provided China with was the opportunity and the ability to really shape the politics around global networks in the ways that the United States has in the past, and in a certain sense, perhaps to create an internet with Chinese characteristics. So you saw Huawei not simply looking to build out global telecommunications, but also engaging in all of these very, very dull-seeming, but quite important international forums in places like the International Telecommunications Union, where the ground rules of the internet are laid out, And Huawei wanted to press for a new form of running the Internet, a new set of protocols to run the Internet, which would have enabled much greater degrees of national control and much greater degrees of surveillance. And so the presumption there was that uh, what Huawei was doing was effectively creating an Internet which will be much, much friendlier to authoritarian regimes and much friendlier to the kinds of not simply surveillance, but also control over what people say to each other that authoritarian regimes engage in. And one has to say, in fairness to the United States, there is a lot of evidence of surveillance. The evidence of the United States uh, looking to, for example, try to prevent people from talking to each other in the way that, uh, for example, China looks to prevent distance from talking to each other. There's uh, that. That's not something that the United States has done at scale.
2: It's interesting you mentioned the ITU, the International Telecommunications Union, because I used to I used to cover that uh, when I was in Geneva as a correspondent a long time ago, and I got the impression then that they were basically helping governments get surveillance systems in place from private companies. Am I right about that? That's basically what they do. So my sense of the
1: International Telecommunications Union is that there was a very, very big fight, a political fight that happened in the 1990s over who was going to control the internet. And the battle was between, on the one hand, the International Telecommunications Union, which of course has been around since the day of the Telegraph. It's a old um, sort of United Nations-type organization that has specialized in traditional forms of telecommunication. And this new body, this bunch of private entities, such as ICANN, the uh, Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, uh, and and, uh, the Internet Engineering Task Force, these are private sector-dominated organizations, which were really being pushed by the United States. And so the battle was over whether or not these private sector organizations, which the United States was uh, backing, were going to prevail over the ITU or vice versa. And the ITU lost that fight back then. It found itself effectively being cut out of uh, control of the internet, which, of course, was uh, obviously the network that was capable of eating up the old traditional telecommunications uh, services. And so because of that, I think we saw uh, over a period after that an implicit an implicit alliance between the actors who felt that they had been beaten out of that process, including the ITU and including a lot of authoritarian countries as well, because the ITU, like the uh, United Nations, is a uh, club of states which provides authoritarian countries with a degree of influence, with a degree of authority that they did not have in the uh, IETF, certainly, uh, nor in ICANN either, uh, even after uh, various reforms were introduced in ICANN that provided governments with a greater voice. So really, the ITU has been looking to increase its power. That implicitly and explicitly has been a somewhat pro-authoritarian agenda, if only because it provides authoritarian countries with more influence than they had under the uh, private sector arrangements. And then during the Trump administration, we saw uh, a lot of politics happening at the ITU around Chinese efforts to uh, promote influence and the Trump administration being uh, asleep at the wheel for the first part of this and then panicking and reacting in a uh, very, very uh, harsh manner with uh, people like Mike Pompeo talking about how he had to create a clean internet uh, after they realized that to some extent the horse had left the bar.
2: Right. So uh, can you just give us then a summary of where you think this current contest is between the US and China Yeah. Well, on surveillance capacity of the internet? Still very much in favour of the US, but you're saying China is is getting better at it, particularly in Asia. Would that be right? Uh, yes, I think China is getting better
0: at
1: it, and China is getting much much better at exercising influence in international organisations at it using uh, its using its bully pulpit in a sense, and using the problems and the unhappiness that there is among a lot of countries with uh, US dominance, using that in order to promote a uh, understanding of the internet which is uh, closer to Chinese interests. That said, I think that the Biden administration has done rather better at this than the Trump administration. The uh, Trump administration really was very, it it would deliver threats in a somewhat haphazard way to countries which did things such as uh, installing uh, Huawei equipment. Uh, There was a famous threat which was issued by uh, Richard Grenell, who was really Trump's hatchet man in Europe, he was the ambassador to Germany, to the United Kingdom, suggesting that it would get kicked out of the Five Eyes Alliance if it did not, if it, if it uh, went ahead and uh, installed uh, Huawei equipment, as it was suggesting it was going to do. So the Trump administration was big on threats. Uh, the Biden administration, I think, has returned to a more traditional form of multinational diplomacy and has been doing rather better at that. But it is also finding, I think, that uh, the United States does not have the natural dominance that it used to have. Uh, if you look back even during the Obama administration, there was an assumption uh, that the United States made and that was made by many of its allies that the United States was the, quote, leader of the free world, unquote and that even if uh, many of its allies didn't necessarily like everything that the US uh, was doing, but they nonetheless grudgingly had to go along with it. And that assumption, I think, has been dramatically weakened over the uh, four years of the Trump administration, so that I think that the Biden people are having a far, far more difficult time, especially
2: with non-aligned countries, in convincing them to go along. You're critical of of way Trump dealt with it, but those threats against Britain worked, actually, didn't they? I mean, the British government totally caved because its own its own security system said we can handle this Huawei stuff. There's no uh, security implication for the UK, uh, but still, they they went along with what Trump demanded.
1: Uh, they did, and so the uh, the so I would say that the Trump administration's approach, as I say, consisted more of threats than of uh, traditional forms of diplomacy there were traditional forms of diplomacy which went along with it. And so the the Trump administration won some important battles, but it did not have any very uh, useful strategy for winning the overall war. Another important uh, aspect of uh, the United States policy towards Huawei uh, was this uh, effort by uh, the United States to prosecute the uh, chief uh, financial officer and heir apparent, uh, the uh, daughter of the founder of Huawei. She found herself... Uh, stranded in Canada for three years while she was uh, under uh, indictment for uh, breaking uh, international, for effectively for breaking international law, and uh, so this was something that the United States had done. Uh, this was not something that Trump himself had uh, cooked up, but uh, Bolton records how it is that he had this conversation with uh, Trump, where somebody had clearly been talking to Trump tried to persuade him to let this woman go. And the argument that this person had made was that uh, this woman was, quote, the Ivanka Trump of China, unquote. And Trump clearly found this pretty persuasive and was grumpy and was grumbling about why it is that we were going after this person. So you saw on the one hand, you know, certainly there were some things that the United States did which were effective in the uh, short term. And the United States is, if it, you do not want to be on the other side from the United States. It has a terrifying amount of power and influence it can bring to bear. But the ability of the United States to convert this into a long-term strategy to try and stymie China uh, under the Trump administration was non-existent because Trump himself was such a chaotic,
2: disorganized person who really um, observed sort of used to govern by tweet. So ju- just on um, a couple of points arising from what you've, you've said so far about the internet, just one thing that may not be clear. When we say this stuff goes through the U.S., Uh, it actually physically goes through the US, right? There'll be a building somewhere in America where a lot of global internet traffic is is passing through and there will be uh, uh, maybe an employee of the company or an employee of the American state who will sit in that building and organize the hack so the way the way that it works is if people think you know the internet is so easy to use.
1: I mean, of course we're using it right at the moment to uh, conduct this podcast, and it seems like magic. You just uh, connect your uh, computer into the wireless network, and somehow miraculously information appears to uh, it seems to appear in one place after having them um, sort of left on um, sort of milliseconds before another place, and you just don't think about what happens going in between, but. One of the arguments that we make in the book is that you really have to pay attention to these boring and dull engineering and technical questions because they provide a lot of power. And in this case, what happens is that a lot of information goes on fiber optic cables, which are made, um, you know, they go underground, they go uh, beneath the sea, um, sort of along the the ocean bed, and that this information travels along these cables. It travels effectively as pulses of light along these fiber optic cables, and then it gets to the other end. When it gets to the other end, it it goes into a switch, and then um, it gets um, moved from one network to another, and that's the place in which it's possible for uh, the United States to uh, break in and to more or less say, this information is information that we want, and to uh, grab it all and to divert it so that they can see what people are saying to each other. So that there is this book by an individual called Mark Klein. Uh, He's one of the people who we interviewed uh, for the uh, the book. And he was a uh, communications engineer, a lefty communications engineer working in uh, San Francisco for one of the major United States telecommunications companies. And there was a room in his building that nobody was allowed to go into without a security clearance. He eventually becomes one of the people who effectively helps to maintain the room. And he discovers that inside the room, there is, there is a kind of prism which splits off the light that is coming out of the cable and sends half of the signal uh, out to the uh, ordinary network as it ought to be sent and half into a special uh, machine which has been installed by the NSA, which then uh, goes through, looks for particular uh, indicators that this might be uh, valuable Information from the point of view of United States security and foreign policy, and grab that information out and
2: makes it available. So let's just ask how 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 precisely this works. So if 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 someone I don't know in Africa writes uh, an email with the word, let's say, an email a word of interest to the US, like assassinate, and and it goes through the US, is it that the US is recording everything and storing it? And then does a search to see whether the word assassinate is in it or does it pick up suspect emails as they come in and only uh, save those ones so we don't
1: have a very very clear idea of a lot of what is happening pretty well everything that we know about this comes from the uh, snowden leaks which happened a decade ago and the snowden leaks were also and this is something that i think is underappreciated were limited leaks uh, so that Snowden and the people around him, you can may agree or disagree with uh, many decisions that they made, but it's clear that there were was a lot of information that they decided not to reveal because they uh, believed that this information was effectively too dangerous from one perspective or another to get at. So we don't have as clear of a sense as we uh, would like of exactly how much you know, sort of how much information is sort of, uh, going to the NSA. Equally, it's probably pretty clear that uh, not everything is stored and kept by the NSA just because it's impossible to do that uh they but but the but but what we do know is that the NSA now find itself in a position that was is more or less the opposite of what it was 30 or 40 years ago when it was extremely difficult to get valuable information uh and to uh you know so, so that, that the difficulty wasn't getting the information in the first place now the problem that the Nsa has is that there is so much information sliding through that might be potentially valuable that actually storing it and searching through it presents some very, very considerable technical challenges. And so one of the ways that the NSA tries to deal with this, or has tried to deal with it as best as we can tell from the Snowden leaks, and we don't know nearly as much as we would like to about what has been happening in the intervening decade, is that there is a distinction between upstream and downstream information. Uh, so effectively, there are two ways in which the information might work. One might be that the, the NSA has tried to tap into this torrent of information, which is going through these switches. That allows the United, uh, United States access to all of this information, uh, you know, so at scale. But this information is really disorganized, you know. So, so it is looking for these uh, specific uh, sort of uh, maybe uh, key terms, such as assassination or Biden uh, assassination or whatever, and it picks that information out. But it is very, very hard. It's like this fire hose of information which is happening all the time. So a lot of what the U.S. did was to figure out uh, not just those sort of upstream torrents, but also downstream information by going to companies like Google, like Microsoft, and demanding we want access to this or this observed sort of form of uh, information, this or this email, whether this be an email that mentions a specific person that comes from a specific email address or whatever, and the disadvantage of this is that it is uh, probably going to miss out on a lot of stuff. The advantage is that it is much, much easier to uh, collate, to organize, and to parse through to see if there's something valuable or useful there. So a uh, short version is we do not know how much information the NSA has. It is almost certainly less than the uh, complete body of information that is passing through the United States at uh, any time because uh, there, there is just... It's just impossible to store uh, for uh, more than a periods of hours or days. I'm sorry, we just don't have enough capacity to do that. Uh, but we do know that the uh, NSA has enough information passing through that it has uh, been forced to uh, resort to effectively building entire new vast facilities in order to uh, capture and process the information
2: it does have access to. I-, I read somewhere in your book that they store stuff for a month. What did that refer to?
1: So th- this was there's uh, one of the uh, Snowden leaks suggests that they uh, took the uh, phone uh, the phone information all the phone calls uh, that were uh, conducted in a uh, small country over a period of uh, several weeks and they uh, stored that just to see if they could and to see what information they could could get from effectively being a- then able to play back uh, these phone calls uh, later in order to figure out uh, sort of what people had said to each other at a particular time.
2: So you're saying that, let's say, again, Democratic Republic of Congo, for example, they could hold every, what, mobile phone call, a recording of every mobile phone call in that country for a few weeks or a month or something? Uh, that, that certainly is what the uh, Snowden leak uh, suggested happened, yes.
1: Now, that said, sorting through that information, searching that information, finding valuable nuggets uh, in there is a, uh, that is something that is very, very hard to do. So it is not, you know, this is not a superpower but it certainly is uh, they have access to vaster quantities of information and abilities to at least to some degree to parse through that information far
2: more than I think most people realize. On the phone calls, I wanted to ask you about that. Is there a difference between mobile phone calls in terms of the American capacity to surveil, mobile phone calls, landline phone calls and satellite phone calls? That uh,
1: is uh, information uh, probably communications engineers will be able to tell you. I don't have a very strong sense of uh, whether there are particular differences. I think that really uh, that really depends on that, that. really depends on the technical details. A lot of this information, at one point or another, passes through central points. It does pass through switches uh, of one sort or another. So uh, it's probably at that point that a lot of the information can be picked up. And at that point, I would suggest that it's probably pretty indistinguishable. What has happened in the wake of Snowden. And what has had important consequences is that a lot of companies pay much more attention to encrypting the data that they have uh, than they used to. So that, for example, uh, Google has—it uh, used to transfer information from one of its server centers to another across uh, across fiber optic cables, using just as massive data transfers, and it used to not encrypt it. It now encrypts it, which makes it much, much more laborious and time-intensive for uh, the NSA to try and get access to it. Sure it probably is sure, technically uh, nearly impossible uh, for some forms of information. Uh, there, there may be hidden bugs in the uh, cryptography that they use which could allow the NSA access, but if that is happening, nobody is telling about it. Certainly, it makes the NSA's uh, life much more difficult than it used to. As Google has also been pushing to try and uh, get everybody on the uh, internet to encrypt as much of their communications as possible, so that, for example, it has been implicitly downgrading sites that do not have uh, HTTPS, which is a, a relatively secure means of, uh, of of conveying information, in order to try and move everybody towards a more secure, uh, a more secure, a uh, uh, more secure uh, uh, setting. On cryptography and this is something it, it's very very clear in the wake of these revelations of the snowden revelations there was a lot of anger among big u.s tech companies they had known some of what was happening because they were required under u.s law to secretly hand over a lot of information on customers they had not realized uh, how much of this information was being taken by the united states in the wild from u.s companies uh that were operating outside the territorial uh boundaries. Of the united states of america the nsa seems to have decided that it was it was uh, perfectly okay to do this and it also worked together with the united kingdom's gchq which had access to some cables that the united states did not have direct access to in order to do this and so that for example uh, suggests that a lot of microsoft's uh, data was uh, effectively being uh, taken by the united states microsoft's president brad smith uh, wrote a uh, book where he suggested uh, extreme anger and upset at what had happened uh, and how the United States had been doing this in ways that undermined Microsoft's business model and Microsoft's ability to operate in countries which had a, uh, a- adversarial relationship or even some degree of uh, distrust of the United States. Uh, this meant that Microsoft was seen as being, in a certain sense, uh, vulnerable to or beholden to the United
0: States of America. slash nbn50 to get 50% off. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute, and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash ev9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and/or driving conditions. Always drive safely.
2: Just looking at at the point of view of an individual, then, if they're using these uh, internet applications that have encrypted phone calls and texting, uh, or maybe if they're using landlines, which are basically, you know, old tech and only go, you know, are restricted to. The country in which they they work. So you know, if you go to I don't know Pakistan or somewhere, the the landlines of and w- won't um, be internationally connected very much. It, it it's possible then that your call will not be available to the U.S. security system. I would what I would say is that cryptography is not perfect. Uh, so uh,
1: Bruce Schneider, who's a co-author of mine and who is a real cryptographer in a way that I absolutely am not, he has a dictum that. Everybody is capable of coming up with some system of cryptography, which uh, has no flaws that they themselves can see, which is perfect as far as they themselves can see. And uh, so what we know about cryptography is, you know, these are mathematical techniques for encoding information so as to make it difficult for others to uh, to, uh uncode it. Uh, and they, they are far, far better than anything else. But also, uh, we uh, regularly discover there are vulnerabilities in the cryptographic schemes that we use, which uh, we may not have known about. And, of course, uh, the United States, GCHQ, other places have people whose lives are devoted to figuring out what these vulnerabilities are and looking to exploit them. And sometimes the vulnerabilities are not in the cryptographic schemes themselves, but they are in the uh, software that is used to implement the cryptography. And sometimes they're just in the uh, human beings, uh, the flawed human beings uh, who are on one end or another of the communications channel, and may do really stupid things uh, which provide access to information uh, that, she, you know, sort of that, that, that governments perhaps should not have. Nonetheless, uh, cryptography does, as far as we can tell, have a pretty important role. This is something that I think is a particular issue of importance in the United Kingdom at the moment. United Kingdom is proposing uh, legal measures that would effectively make it impossible for uh, companies to provide strong cryptography that did not have some form of implicit backdoor access uh, to government. And uh, the way that the government is justifying this is uh, by suggesting that this has security implications, that this also has uh, implications for things such as child pornography. But we're seeing very, very strong pushback from companies and businesses, including, for example, Apple, who've suggested that if the United Kingdom moves ahead with these kinds of controls, that Apple is uh, going to pull out certain services from the United Kingdom and refuse to offer uh, uh, British iPhone users, for example, the kinds of secure guarantees that they have as Apple works at the moment. So if you are interested in uh, keeping your information uh, secret, there certainly are services such as, for example, Signal, uh, where what I can say is that there are no known major vulnerabilities for services such as Signal. That is not to say that there may not be uh, hidden vulnerabilities that the uh, security services are aware of, but you're probably much, much better off if you're going for a reason, if you're using one of these services, uh, certainly Signal, perhaps to a much lesser extent, another service called Telegram, which has become particularly popular in Russia. uh, Using these uh, services makes it uh, rather more difficult for uh, governments to
2: see what it is that you're in fact saying to other people. Right, which means that what you described earlier, this huge capacity, to read emails and listen to phone calls is is yeah arguably a complete waste of time because any anyone who's got something secret to say is likely to use Signal or whatever it is, and and to reduce the chance of their being listened to. So what's yeah, I mean? Doesn't that undermine the whole system? So you can make that argument. I mean, I you know I am
1: clearly somebody who's very much on the civil liberties side of these uh, of, the, of of these uh, debates. Equally, and this is one of the things we try to do in the book, is to present the uh, side of the more security-interested people, such as, for example, Michael Hayden, who is the uh, head of the NSA, to give you a sense of how it is that they see the world. And I think that the way that they see the world, and I think this is reasonable, is that if you keep perfect security, if you are somebody who is relentless about using uh, cryptographically encrypted communications, using a secure operating system such as Tails, uh, and you do this 24/7, it is going to be extremely difficult for uh, governments to tap into your information without taking the kind of very extreme steps such as uh, you know sort of, I, I don't know sort of using some so-called zero day exploit on uh, your hardware actually, I'm sort of physically entering into your room and uh, uh, getting access that way, it's going to be very, very hard for the government to get access to your information uh, uh, if you take these uh, steps, if you are completely consistent about it. But human beings are not consistent. Uh, They uh, tend sometimes to uh, log in and you're using uh, less secure services because it's temporarily convenient. They forget, they uh, have brain farts, all the things that human beings uh, uh, do. And uh, o- over time, if you make a, a pattern of small errors, it becomes possible then for a security services to zoom in. So I think one very good example of this, again, this is something that we don't talk about in the book, is the guy who was the uh, person behind the Silk Road dark market on uh, on Tor. On this was a uh, hidden drugs market using a particular variant of internet communications, which made it extremely hard for people to, uh, for people to, uh, to track on sort of who was talking to whom, And so this guy created this drug market. So you could buy and sell drugs uh, using Silk Road. and I uh, see as the owner of the market would take a share of what people were buying and selling. This was all using a fairly advanced encryption, not simply the Tor browser, which is a an encrypted form of communication uh, that was created by a branch of the uh, US government, in a sense, or created with the help of a branch of the US government. but That's a whole different story. He Also, uh, also people were using this uh, PGP, pretty good privacy, uh, as a means to uh, communicate with each other over time and create identities without those identities being linked to uh, physical human beings. But it turns out, if you want to sell drugs back and forth, at some point or another, you need to provide an address that the drugs have to be delivered to. That creates one vulnerability. Uh, there are other vulnerabilities that there turned out to be in the Tor browser, which uh, it looks like were exploited by U.S. law enforcement. And then Brian Ulrich, the guy who was behind all of this, uh, he called himself the Dread Pirate Roberts. He was arrested in the library, which where he was using the wireless network in order to uh, in order to, uh, uh not not do it from home from an, an internet address where he can be traced, and uh, they managed to grab him in time before he could shut down his laptop and encrypt it. And when the laptop is open, when you're able to get physical access, you uh, are able to, uh, as they were, to uh, get uh, access to all of the records, which showed that in fact he had been uh, running this drug market, had tried to contract out the uh, murder of somebody who uh, threatened to leak details, all of these things, which have resulted in him being in a
2: high security prison. One of the points you make in your book is the control of the Internet or the yeah, access to the Internet and to these phone calls is, is yeah, a big part of the story. But there's something else going on, which is access to methods of transferring money around the world. Another thing that's done you know, through all these cables. I mean, it's a slightly different aspect of this, isn't it? But I think it'd be interesting just to ask you to run through briefly the tussle between uh, Europe and the U.S. on control of the SWIFT system. And, you know, there's an American attempt to get get this uh, power to uh, manage all the financial transactions, you know, of over $10,000. But then Europe managed to do it. But the US has then fought back, pushed back and got access to that SWIFT system, isn't it?
1: Yeah. So what happened was that after September 11th, 2001, of course, uh, the United States was looking around for ways that it can, for ways that it can track uh, money transfers, because One of the things that the September 11th attackers did, the September 11th attackers, they basically used ordinary money transfers to send money back and forth to to the hijackers. And so there was a lot of unhappiness uh, at the about the ways in which the terrorists had been able to organize and to use these systems of globalization, these uh, financial systems, these information systems, to send money to each other to coordinate this rather complicated international plot And the United States had, effectively been asleep at the wheel. So one of the things that happens immediately after September 11th is the United States Treasury is uh, thinking about ways in which they can gather information, and they immediately turn to the SWIFT system. So SWIFT is this this uh, 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 Belgian-based, multi-bank-run, non-profit organization, which runs financial messaging. And uh, the financial system is incredibly complicated, but more or less... When you send money back and forth, uh, whether it be within the United Kingdom, whether it be across the world, one key part of that is messages that are sent back and forth between your bank, the bank that you're transferring money uh, from, and whatever bank you're transferring money to to ensure that the bank uh, money, that the money uh, is leaves the right account and finds its way to the right account. And so Swift uh, then provides in itself. sense. It provides a lot of information on who is sending money to who. It has that information. It managed for a long while to keep relatively free from government interference. But after September 11th, it was very, very quickly pressed into service by the United States. And uh, the United States did this all very secretly uh, because uh, SWIFT, as I say, is based in Belgium. And in order to provide all of this information to the United States, it was very, very clearly breaking European privacy law. And so... Over a couple of years, the United States uh, kept on putting pressure. Swift was extremely nervous about this and uh, kept on uh, getting cold feet. The uh, United States uh, sent in people like uh, Vice President Dick Cheney, Condoleezza Rice, other people to reassure Swift and tell them that it was doing what it was slowly doing. But then the United States, two uh, New York Times journalists, uh, uh, Risen and Vic they write an article on the front page of the New York Times revealing what the U.S. has been doing at creating this crisis between europe and the united states and it has to be said that uh, the crisis is one where there are a lot of pro-privacy people on the european side who are extremely upset about this this also has consequences for uh, the strains of european privacy legislation down the line but equally there were a lot of people in europe who seem to have had a pretty good idea of what was going on and to have decided that they preferred that the united states had this power even if they preferred not to have to know officially what was happening. So uh, there were a couple of European bank officials, for example, who literally, when they were told by U.S. officials uh, what was happening, they uh, they more or less put their hand over their ears and said, la, 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 we can't hear you. They, they, they told the officials they did not want to know anymore. They wanted the officials to shut up immediately about it. So then you get this complicated set of uh, negotiations between the EU and the U.S., which result in a deal which has some controls and some limitations on how the U.S. can access this data. And uh, Europe then wants to set up its own system for uh, figuring out what's happening, but uh, that system never gets set up. So Europe effectively ends up giving uh, permission to the United States to engage in these somewhat more limited uses of SWIFT data, so long as Europe has access to this data too. And that is more or less the status quo that has persisted ever since. And in, uh, I should also say that, in addition to the information that Swift hands over formally, it appears that the NSA independently also was tapping into uh, Swift information uh, under a uh, system which presumably is not subject to the same kinds of uh, somewhat minimal controls
2: as the uh, controls that the United States grudgingly agreed to under its agreement with the That's right. So they got two ways in. Into Swift. Yeah. Well. Well. Just looking ahead, a couple of issues. Um, first of all, five G. Does five G help China? Does it help the U.S.? How will five G affect things? So five G.
1: Five G is in some ways it's a somewhat more decentralized system, which means that uh, which means that it is uh, it's uh, and this was one of the the big reasons that there was nervousness about Huawei. Because if Huawei uh, had really invested in 5G and had built the world's 5G systems out to the extent that it wanted to, then it would perhaps have had much deeper reach into the internals of the system than uh, under previous uh, or 4G or other systems uh, it would have had. So I think that 5G it, uh, the question I think, is less, what does the technology what does the tech, the, the, who does the technology empower? That of what kinds of uh, activities does the technology empower? And so I think we're moving into a world where more and more we're seeing our devices uh, uh, connect to the internet and 5G makes that easier. and a lot of these devices are incredibly badly secured. Uh, there is no legal obligation uh, in, in reality that makes some sort of uh, device manufacturers have to produce secure devices so that uh, there are a lot of producers, for example, in China and elsewhere, who are maybe less interested in providing secret access to the uh, Chinese government than in producing something as cheaply as possible, and this means that they tend to cut corners on security, and this then means that everybody can tap into it. So I think that the issues for five G are less whether China or the United States is then than whether this just provides much, much, much more ability for people to, uh, for, uh, for governments everywhere to tap into communications. Because there are so many badly secured devices that are going to be connecting to uh, the internet via 5G. And your server, our fridges, our other things are going to be provided information. Most of that information, again, is going to be pretty useless, but sometimes that information will be quite useful. And one of the things that I think there, so the uh, Netflix series, Nupa, uh, which uh, is a fun series on a whole seventh round. One of the episodes that I thought really captured super well is that there's a somewhat paranoid police officer who is aware that he is at risk of being uh, tapped into for corrupt meetings that he's engaged in. And he uh, goes around his house, he finds a whole bunch of bugs, which he put there by Lupin, by his antagonist. But what he doesn't realize is that the deeper system that he has is also something which is a fundamental security unit. Mm-hmm. And uh, he just talks this all the time. And it is through this that the information gets leaked. And the more and more that we have these devices at home, the more and more that we have smart devices that allow for voice communications, the easier it is for people to tap in. And the more that a technology such as 5G encourage device manufacturers to connect in so that they phone home to mothership, the greater the de- degree of uh, insecurity that we get as a result. And not simply for ourselves, uh, very often we see these devices, such as uh, poorly secured security cameras, poorly secured uh, household devices that connect to the internet, being used, for example, by hackers to uh, conduct vast distributed denial of service attacks in which these uh, devices all coordinate together to try and request data from a particular server on the internet and completely overload it. And this is possible or made much easier because
2: of the lousy security that we have uh, for our device connectivity. The Russians we hear from time to time are practicing snapping cables on the seabed, you know, that they control hooks or something and break them. Is that happening? And presumably that would be a clever thing for Russia to do, because if America's the one, or China, and America are the ones with all these cables, then there's not much that could be done in response, because Russia doesn't have any to hit back on. We we do have some evidence
1: that suggests that Russia has uh, snapped cables, uh, or other actors have snapped cables Uh we also have evidence of uh, China having creating satellite busters, uh, which are intended clearly to go for uh, security. You know, for for uh, they could be used against uh, surveillance satellites. They could also be used against communication satellites. So, uh, in general, the world that we have created is a world which has incredibly vulnerable linkages, and so that uh, you know so that convey information from one point to another, which can fairly readily be disrupted. Uh, but one of the interesting things I've seen for the recent war is that there has been much less of that than one might have expected. There has been much less in the way of uh, basic infrastructure attacks. And I think part of the reason for that is because Russia uh, Russia could certainly exploit the vulnerabilities of Western countries, but Russia itself is extremely vulnerable to attack. So that uh, there were a lot of predictions that we were going to see Cyber war being let loose. Uh, uh, should there be a physical, uh, should there be a physical war of one sort or another? And uh, we've certainly seen a variety of different cyber attacks being uh, unleashed upon things such as Ukraine's power system and so on. But we've seen much, much less happening to our uh, countries in the West than one might have expected. I uh, give the vulnerabilities, and I think that is because uh, Russia is entirely aware that its systems too are deeply vulnerable to hacking have probably been penetrated in great and intimate detail by uh, U.S. and other hackers, and that they themselves are uh, worried that if they start messing around, for example, with basic infrastructure, with uh, power supplies and so on, that they will find uh, themselves uh, wide open to a similar similar kind of attacks and uh, probably even more vulnerable.
2: We're we're very grateful for your explanation of what you found out. So thank you very much indeed for taking us through it.
1: And thank you so much as well. This was a very fun conversation. Thank you.